This episode of the podcast is proudly sponsored by Chemed Health. Chemed is dedicated to providing exceptional healthcare services to the Lakewood community. Their team of highly skilled doctors, nurses, and medical professionals work tirelessly to ensure the Lakewood community receives the very best care possible. Their state-of-the-art facilities enable them to deliver advanced medical care that is second to none. As the Lakewood community continues to grow, Chemed is looking to expand its team of physicians and nurses. To hear more, reach out to Yara Stern at 973-800-4235 or at ystern at chemedhealth.org. That's C-H-E-M-E-D-H-E-L-T-H.org. And I'll put that information in the show's notes for anyone that uh, is interested to see. And thank you to Chemed for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. Uh, and always, uh, any questions, comments, or feedback, um, guest suggestions are all welcome. Um, I did get some recent feedback in a couple of episodes, people like, didn't like, different things you want to hear or or otherwise, so please let me know. Email me, nachi at svaramchatter.com, as well as if anyone wants to sponsor an episode, I did get a number of those. Thank you for all those that did sponsor an episode. Again, I mentioned this is $360 to sponsor an episode. And as well as if you want to support it, any people, 18, 25, 36, 50, whatever it is, just want to support the podcast, um, any amount of money, that's um, there's a PayPal link in the show's notes, as well as you can email me, nachiatsfarmshatter.com, about Zell. It's a different uh, email. So if you're interested in that, you can uh, send me an email. And uh, I'm very appreciative to all, everyone who subscribes to the podcast and rates and reviews. So thank you. And uh, thank you again to Hamad for sponsoring the episode and enjoy this week's episode. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor, Professor Susan Einbinder, who is Professor of Hebrew and Judaic Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Connecticut. And we will be discussing her new book, which is titled Writing Plague, Jewish Responses to the Great Italian Plague, which is in 1631, uh, thereabouts. And this is published by Penn University Press. Um, and we'll be talking about the, the, again, the Jewish responses to the plague, so the various literature and the various individuals that she uh, researched in this book. So thank you, Professor Einbinder, for joining me. Thank you. Okay, let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background. Well, um, my background is not as someone who studies 17th century Italian Jewish plagues, but um, but um, my that is actually the hardest question you asked me to prepare. But um, I I started out in college as a math major, and my intention was never to study medieval Hebrew anything. But um, but um, but I ended up with a doctorate in medieval comparative literature, initially focusing on Jews in Islamic lands, and then. Um, in 1993, when I took a job at the Hebrew Union College in Cincinnati, um, one of the first courses I had to teach was to fill in for Professor Michael Meyer, who was on sabbatical, and, and it was a, a, a history survey. And um, from that, from crash preparing for that course, I, I really became fascinated by the Jews of northern France and in the Middle Ages. And so I moved myself over and found myself over the next 
10, 15 years really working on Jews in um, Ashkenaz and Northern France. And, and um, because of my background in comparative literature, I was very interested in the ways what Jews wrote um, reflected their embeddedness in a larger culture and their awareness of other kinds of writing attitudes and people. So um, that's a pretty general answer, but that's um, from a BA in math, that's where I ended up. <laughs> so following up on that, you, you also have been done some work on plague and plague literature. You've done um, Spain and, and others and now on Italian plague. I mean, that's an interesting thing. You mentioned the comparative literature aspect, and that's something we'll get into here where you have various, you know, the book is titled Responses, but we're going to talk about poems and laments and narrative and different and sermons, different type of uh, literature. But why specifically plague? How is that something that you got in plague literature? Well, um, my first book was about um, keynote, about laments that were written for Jewish victims of judicial executions, autos de fe, right, in, in France. My second book was about expulsion, um, literature that was uh, had traces of the memory of France from, by um, Jews who had been expelled and their descendants, so expelled. So um, when I first became interested in plague, I thought I was actually improving because at least the people you know, it wasn't it wasn't quite as as uh, grim, but plague. But um, but um, when I was writing No Place of Rest, my second book on expulsion, I came across a story which I wrote about in that book, which was a father's account of a Jewish physician in Avignon who described the death of his daughter from plague um, in 1382. So not the initial wave of the Black that we call the Black Death, but one of the very early recur recurrences. Um, so, um, and he was a physician actually to the Pope's brother in Avignon. So a very high ranking, um, successful Jewish physician in Avignon. And this was an incredibly moving um, account of his favorite child, clearly, because he loses two others in the same story, um, um, who, uh, who, who died of, of plague. And, um, and it occurred to me, working on that, um, my, first, my first focus wasn't really so much the plague part, but the physician part, that the, the physicians are such a, a phenomenally interesting subgroup of medieval Jews, right? And, and they're also easier to track when you're looking at uh, communities that are expelled and dispersed and reassembled and um, moving around because they're so employable. So they tend to show up wherever they, wherever they end up. And um, so my first my first interest was really just in looking more at physicians. And, and slowly, uh, it, it occurred to me that the plague was really quite an extraordinary lens through which to look at not just the activity of Jewish physicians, but at Jewish communities in general. And because 
99% of what you could read about Jews and plague 10 years ago was just about attacks on Jewish communities. Um, um, there was nothing written almost about, about Jews and plague, right? <laughs> just um, how did they respond to, to sickness? How did they organize their communities? Were there, how did they, did they share, did they go to the same hospitals that Christians went to or Muslims? Or just, did they use the same treatments? Did they have the same understandings of the disease, right? So, um, so that really, it was just an enormous blank spot in the in what we knew as far as I could tell and so that it just was very compelling to me and uh, here we'll get to the Italian plague so the great Italian plague so you mentioned uh before that uh, the the plague the black death bubonic plague and that's like what we're talking about here the great Italian plague but just Listeners are familiar from other episodes that I did, but if you could just mention in brief just about the plague, the Black Death in general, and and what happened here, what year we're talking about, 1629, 1631, thereabouts in Italy, if we could just talk about what we mean by the Great Italian Plague. Right. Um, that's a that's a good question. When when most of us talk about plague, what we're referring to is bubonic plague, what we now call bubonic plague, which um, until another great thing about studying plague is that the information, the knowledge changes almost weekly. So you have to watch what you say. But, um, but um, until extremely recently, uh, we talked about three waves of uh, known waves of bubonic plague. The first one um, being the Justinianic plague in the um, sixth century to the seventh century, about 200 years actually. So sixth century to eighth century. Um, the second one launching with what we call the black death in the, in the mid 14th century. And then um, continuing to have continuing outbreaks that are associated with that same um, same wave until the 1700s. And then a third wave, which is um, associated with the plague outbreaks in Hong Kong and India um, in the late 1800s and the early 1900s, right? So um, the more recently scholars have have suggested that really the second and the third um, pandemics are pretty much the same. It's one long pandemic, but um, and we also know now that there's a prehistoric episode of plague, right? Um, that um, that we have no written testimony for, right? But um, so when we talk about plague, we're talking about this specific um, pathogen, a bacterial pathogen called Yersinia pestis, which with the exception of the prehistoric plague um, is transmitted to humans by um, two animal, um, two animals, right? You need a, you need a rodent of some sort or a mammal of some sort, usually a rodent. And that rodent has fleas that are then infected with the um, bacteria, Yersinia pestis, and then the flea bites the person, right? So um, there are 
mutations of, of plague like that become pneumonic or septicemic, right, and don't require the flea in, in medium. But um, so that's the disease we're talking about. And until really about 10 years ago, there was even still debate over whether what we called the Black Death and the subsequent iterations of plague were bubonic plague. But um, as of, I think, 2011, um, the, by extracting ancient DNA from, um, from victims that were buried in what we know are plague cemeteries, scientists or geneticists were able to positively identify that pathogen as bubonic plague and to map its entire genome. So um, so that's the scientific answer to your question. That's plague. And um, the historical and social um, answer is um, we don't know exactly when the second pandemic, the one we associate with the Black Death, got started, what caused whatever made it spill over from a rodent population into a human one. And um, one theory is now it really may be in the 1200s, somewhere in um, in Kyrgyzstan and, and um, Tian Shan mountain area. Right? But, um, but it enters Europe with a jolt, right? There may have been earlier entries, but what we call the Black Death is really is really around 1347, where you see plague um, come in through Sicily into mainland Italy and then across Europe, right? So um, it's a it's the most devastating pandemic in human history. So that's another reason it's interesting to study. The estimates have actually gone up in recent years to, um, we're talking maybe half of, to, to more than half of Europe, if we're looking just at Europe um, fatality, right? So in some places, 90%, some places, 50%, and then curiously, some places less, right? But um, so this is, um, it's, it's a pandemic of such, such ferocity, right, that, um, that, that its impact on human communities, on political institutions, on religious institutions, on families, on economic um, behavior, right? Um, all of these things are so profound, right? That, um, that we, that, that, it, that we can look at this as a kind of model for, um, well, society under enormous, enormous stress, right? So what happens is, um, so after the Black Death, right, when that kind of subsides in Europe, and I'm looking at talking just about Europe right now, in the early 1350s, right, every few years, um, plague is going to come back after that. And what is called the Great Italian Plague is actually considerably later. It's in um, 1629 is where it's usually pegged for a starting point. Um, and um, very typically for later outbreaks, um, you see a combination of factors that 
accompany a severe plague outbreak, one being war, right, or some type of political or social disorder, right, one being famine, um, sometimes politically exacerbated, but often climate exacerbated, right, and then um, something that disturbs the ecosystem in some way that allows that pathogen to start um, looking at humans as viable hosts. So um, in 1629, it's the 30 years war, right? Um, you have the war of the Mantuan succession. You have German and mercenary troops and Spanish troops poor and French troops all kind of coming over the Alps and in different ways into northern Italy. You have had years of fam um, some drought um, there. So um, you, I think local people start reporting um, the circulation of plague in 1629, and that would be in the Turin area. And um, by the next year, it has moved, um, it sort of dies down in the winter, right, which is a sign of plague because fleas don't do too well in the winter, right, and then it comes back in the spring and, um, and ignites, right. So just for... Um, by the late summer of 1630, it's in Padua. It also moves into Venice, right? Um, um, by the following year, Milan, which went into the plague with a population of 130,000 people, um, has 70,000 left, right? Verona, which entered the plague with 53,000 people, has 23,000 left, right? Venice um, had 135,000 people, 90,000 are left after this plague, right? Um, Padua um, had a population of 100,000 and 70,000 are left. Now for, for me, um, one of the things that really was um, fascinating, right, was that there are Jewish ghettos in all of those cities except Milan and um, and in Chieri and Turin where they don't have ghettos yet, right, but, um, but um, and these, the statistics of loss in those ghettos are, are, are horrible, right, so um, Padua where you see, you know, 100,000 people in the city and you lose 30, but in the ghetto you have 741 Jews and, a, and 421 die. Right. So, um, so it was, um, it's, it's, a, it's a regional plague epidemic. It's just in Northern Italy, but it, it is shockingly severe. And, um, and, and that's what we mean by the great Italian plague. And as you mentioned, Turin, which is like in the Piedmont region, right, the northwest Italy. And as you mentioned, Mantua, Padua, Venice, Milan. And, it, and you also mentioned the ghetto. The ghetto was established in the 16th century, so not that much before. And you mentioned some areas don't have a ghetto. So the book, while it being a lot about the plague, as you just laid out, this laid out in the book a lot of it, is also about the responses to the plague. And there are various uh, genres that these narratives, I guess we'll call them, even though it's not only narratives, uh, came from. So let's just talk broadly about these responses. I mean, what kind, what, what, what genres were they using and how, how mm -hmm. common was that? What they were kind of using to respond or, and by response, I also explain what, what do you mean? What do we mean by response? I think we should clarify that. 
Right. Oh, well, what do we mean? Like, well, where's a, we're looking for writing usually, right? Um, there may have been other kinds of responses. You know, people could have eaten lucky foods or worn lucky charms, but we don't know about that, right? Um, but, um, or sung their lucky song, right? But um, for me, I was looking for things in writing and I was looking for things in Hebrew. Um, so, that's a subset of responses, which I always acknowledge because I, it's not what everybody, it's, it's, a, it's a window with its own bias, right? Um, um, it may not reflect what everybody was thinking or doing, but um, by responses, I guess I mean two things and I'll speak for myself. One is, um, if somebody or a community felt that their response to the plague either at their door or already through the door was um, was to pray, right? Then what prayers did they use? That's a response, right? One, you're going to say, okay, I think we better, you know, have community communal prayers, but um, what are they then praying, right? Um, if a rabbi decided to preach about the plague in the synagogue, um, what themes did he enlist? And what do those tell us about the kinds of concerns and threats he perceived to um, the well, the integrity of the community, right? The survival of the community. If someone like my hero, Abraham Catalano, right? If somebody decided to keep a journal, write a record, a, a chronicle of what happened, um, where did that idea come from? And what did he, who was he writing for? And where was it going, right? So those are um, direct kinds of responses. Indirectly, there are also responses, right? So when you can see through those records to say, oh, here's a prayer, and it sounds like from the prayer, they must be using it while they're doing this, right? Or, um, or here's a, a story, and the story mentions these very complicated negotiations between officials in the ghetto and officials in the Christian city or the Board of Health, right? Then, then we get information about a larger context of response where um, there are health officials who are responsible in the larger city, right, um, for surveillance and regulation and, and prevention in some way. And they have to interact with, um, with, with the with officials in the ghetto. So you can see those kind of responses too, right? Or you can see responses. Um, and that's why I also love the Chronicle of Catalano, right? Um, you can see responses that are otherwise going to be below the radar. What children playing when they, which becomes a an infect, a contagion threat, right? Um, 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 people refusing to go to the hospital when they're supposed to, people refusing to be grave diggers, people not wanting to pray, not wanting to have a minyan, right? So, um, so yes, so there are different, you can see through the documents to other kinds of responses too. 
Now, how about the various genres here? I think, as you mentioned, Catalano, and we'll talk more about his Elam Hafuch, where he is kind of, that's more of a uh, chronicle diary, but there's also, yeah, I think you mentioned this at the beginning, there's poem, poetry, there's kinnis, laments, there's um, sermons, we'll get to. So there's other things. So first of all, what, what, what can we see differently from these different, these various genres here. And also, how do these genres, I don't know if this is the focus, compare to, you know, you mentioned already Christian or comparative literature. How do they compare to others using? Um, I think um, I would divide the genre question as old and new, right? There are some um, old um, tried and true things that you can um you can use right like like um prayers right and they can take very specific forms and i have a chapter in the book that talks about the pitum haktorit right the um um so you can take something but by golly it's worked in the past so we'll use it again right and it doesn't have to be specifically invented for your um situation right um and um and those kind of old um, old genres, right, are riding alongside more experimental and new kinds of um, writing, like chronicle writing, historical writing that that um, tries to keep an account of of what's really um, more like a chronicle. It's it is a chronicle, and that. Um, is very much influenced by the same kind of trend in Christian circles. So um, um, going back to the 1570s, when there was a also a very severe plague outbreak in, in um, Italy, there was a that 1570s outbreak inspired a a flood of chronicle writing and in the vernacular, not just in Latin. And so people, um, Jews can read it. And and they seem to have been um, aware of some of those chronicles and and use them as a a model really for, for their own work, so that's a newer kind of um, kind of form. But um, yeah, so I think and and sermons are sermons, right? I mean, um, there you can see, and this is very Italian. You were saying before we began um, that the Italian Jews fascinate you. Of course, they have a reputation for being phenomenal preachers, right? And um, and and you can see in the sermons I looked at, and that that they bring all of that artistry and um, force to to the sermon form and can use it to address issues of plague. Okay, so I think now we can get into some of the figures and the you know the figures employed various different. Uh, writing genres, I guess, that we've been talking about. So throughout the book, you discuss different ones. It's broken up really by chapter. I don't know if we'll go in the order of the book or we'll go in the order that you want. We can kind of uh, jump, jump around. You mentioned Catalano, Abraham Catalano. He's kind of as your hero here in the book. Although that's not what you begin with 
the book. But uh, we can begin with him, or I mean, there's him, there's Joseph uh, Concio, there's Avram Masarini, there's uh, Shlomo Marini, Solomon Marini, that's the sermons. So we can start kind of wherever you want. There's a variety, and then there's others that also come in the book, each one. So um, we yeah, we can start in the book order if you want to go the way that you started the book with uh, sure. Concio. Yeah, we can just, re- re- you know, revert that way and then get to Catalano. So Cancio picks one, talk about the, the, you know, his genre, where he was, his basic uh, background, and uh, what we can see, what we can glean out of his you know, response. Yeah, Joseph Cancio, this was, a, well, once I had decided I was going to look at, look for Hebrew um, testimonies to this, this epidemic. Um, I can't remember at this point how I came across him, but um, but but um, this is a a very long poetic work that has never been published. It, it survives in uh, one full manuscript and one fragmentary manuscript. And um, Joseph Cancio himself um, lived in Chieri, right near Turin, and um, and um, he seems to have. Uh, come, you know, like a lot of the northern Italian Jews, they're sort of dynastic families. They are often banking families when they have children who have time to write things. And um, and um, and um, he was the son of a banker scholar, and um, and we know he spent some time in Asti um, working and married the daughter of uh, a, a Jew, also a banker in Asti, went back to Chieri and, um, and, and tried to launch a printing press there. So um, he had this little printing press. He didn't publish many things on it, um, but, um, but, um, but when he, he did also make a well we don't know how he made a living actually but but one of the things he did to make a living was write what we call occasional poetry which is poets if someone commissions you to write a poem for a wedding or a funeral or um a graduation right that's another great italian um genre of uh I graduated from medical school poems, right? So, um, or Devorah Bregman has written all about Hebrew sonnets from Italy, right? And they're they're often for different types of events, right? So, um, you would pay somebody to to write a poem for a specific occasion. So we know he did this, and um, and my guess is is that's how his name probably came up when um, after the plague um, had subsided, he was asked to write a memorial um, poem for the victims of the plague in Turin and in Pieri, right? So um, it's a two-part long poem written in um, a a poetic form we call Terza Rima. And that was what also fascinated me because it's Dante. It's not, um, so on the one hand, um, he's using a very traditional um, kind of Jewish commemorative Hebrew and language. And um, um, and on the other hand, he's 
he's shaping it in a way that would have spoken to Italian Jews very specifically as a story um, of, um, of a, a journey to the dead, right? Um, and so, um, so this was, it's really quite a beautiful poem in many sections, right? And he, he clusters to the extent he must have had informants, right, who told him about the different victims, what they could, and he clusters them by families where he can and, and puts little vignettes together for, for as many of the victims as he can personalize. And, and my guess is that to in some way, this was intended to be a kind of epitaph um, for people who were buried in mass graves and who had no epitaphs and had no graves. So, um, yeah, so he was my first, my first, uh, my first case there. Yeah, and his Zohar Anashamot, Zohar Anashamot is what you call it. So in the book, I will mention also, you do include the, it's very nice, there is, a, not the whole thing, it depends on different parts of the book, we'll go through it again, but it, just let's talk about here. There is some Hebrew uh, letters, characters, is it do include it in Hebrew and in, and in English as well, a translation, and you go through various parts. I mean, he has some really moving parts, and I want to specific, you know, he talks about families, he talks about men, women, children, he talks about, uh, you had one case where he's describing a uh, father, he's describing the grief that they're going through. I mean, there are really uh, very moving, you know, you really walk through uh, various parts of his poem. That's And he's the kind of the first one that you go through. Uh, is, there a, is there a reason just to ask you why you started with him, especially as you're ready? We're going to get to Catalano in a second. You mentioned he's like your hero here in this book. So why did you not start with him? Um, I don't know. I think... The plague hit there first. I mean, so there's a chronological logic to it, but um, but um, I think maybe because I wasn't going to come back to him, and I was going to keep returning to Abraham Catalano, right? Um, and yet he also introduced Cancio also introduced for me some of the kinds of themes that I was interested in, which um, if you are the person who's Here's one of them, right? If you are the person who has been charged with commemorating a large number of victims, right? Um, how do you justify um, speaking on their behalves, right? And and one of the um, things that Cancio does in his um, poem is to include a very long section about his own son's death, and. Um, and that was a technique that I saw in Catalano and also in Maserani, right? Um, where and and Marini later, right? Where um, you kind of signal to your listeners right, that that I suffered too, um, and I I have I I can speak for all of us, right? Um, so I it was a, a cue for me that there are reasons to really pay attention to the literary construction of some of these of these documents um, and not just read them as kind of random reports, right? Okay, so now we can go on to Catalano. Uh, and, and he kind of was like the, almost like the genesis of this book. I, I think you, you mentioned this at the beginning, Michelle Margolis, who's been on the podcast before, and librarian in Colombia, Kind of showed you, mentioned to you the the Columbia copy of his uh, manuscript, 
of his Olam Hafuch, Olam Hafuch, and we can mention that's in Hebrew. There actually is, I think, another translation, right? There's in Italian also, we get that. But uh, who is he? What's Catalano's story and how you came across this manuscript and decided to go on this, to write this book, even though, as you mentioned, you're not really an uh, Italian historian of the 17th century. No, I'm not. I've, I've written one other article on Italian Jews and um, a physician, actually, but but um, but it isn't my comfort zone at all, neither the 17th century nor Italy. But um but yes, so I do blame Michelle Chesner at Columbia for for the for this book, and um, I had finished. I was finishing the previous book on um, the Black Death and Jews in the Iberian Peninsula, and I contacted Michelle to make sure I was citing something correctly that was theirs, and and she said, "Oh, and did you ever look at this manuscript?" and sent me some pictures and scans and it was just it, this was Abraham Catalano's Olama Fuch and um and it is Colombia has what is probably the oldest copy of this chronicle there are about a half a dozen copies um and this one was made by um I think it's Whoa, I think it's um, Isaac Chaim Cantorini, um, um, wh whose brother was, was or uncle, I think his brother was a physician killed during the 1631 plague. So, um, so um, it's a very lovely, it's a nice copy, and it's not hard on the eyes to read, but um, it was such an extraordinary account. And for a medievalist, which I am, um, the jolt was really great. Um, I, I'm not the the personality of an Abraham Catalano came through so strongly, um, and the richness of the description of the different organizations and offices and bureaucracies and people and um, was just, I had never seen anything like that before. And of course, if you're studying the Black Death, none of that was in place. Right? Um, it was the first time it had ever happened and they didn't have that kind of infrastructure but 300 years later by golly they do and um and it's extremely evolved in in italy so um the institutional and social part was fascinating but just the force of personality that came off the page so i really felt like i couldn't i couldn't ignore him and um and um and you're correct, There's there are two versions of this text we know now. And as I was completing this book, um, um, Michelle wrote me again <laughs> and, um, and said, by the way, we just bought an Italian version of this chronicle, right? And, and from the appearances of it, and any of your listeners who's good at, with 17th century Italian and sees this as a as something they would be interested in, I encourage you to go running to the scans. Um, 
um, it looks to me like this is the first, the Italian version is the first version, that he kept it as a journal um, during the actual events of the plague and subsequently rewrote it in Hebrew and made it a much more literary um, composition. So um, yeah, it's just, it's just an extraordinary record. And the version, most of the, I think, six versions, I think maybe five of them conclude with a set of poems written by his son, right, which are also sort of part of the entire work now. Um, and those are little didactic poems that give you advice on what to do if the plague comes. So... Who is Catalano? I don't know if we talked about it enough. What is his background? Who is he? Someone lives in Padua where there is a ghetto, but let's talk about him a little and yeah. then we can kind of talk about his kind of chronicle. Yeah, I um he's I don't know that we know that much about his background. The name Catalano is not Catalan, right? Um it's it's an Ashkenazi family and the name probably comes from the same word as Chatelaine, right? It, um, um, there were some in the, something in the orbit of a castle, right? Um, or, or some type of um, manor, right? Um, but it's, it, it's an Ashkenazi family. He's always, when he mentions the synagogue, he's always in the Ashkenazi synagogue in Padua. And um, we know he was a physician. He graduated from the University of Padua Medical School. And um, I'm pretty sure Eddie Reichman has found his diploma and, um, and um, or um, some of his peers, for sure. And um, and he also does not seem to have practiced medicine. So like many young male Jews at that time, um, once the University of Padua in particular opened its door to Jewish students, it was a great sign of prestige to study medicine there. And um, many of them did it and did not practice. And he was one of those. However, he does seem to have um, held roles of importance in his in the Paduan Jewish community. And um, so he's one of the Parnassim, he's on various committees, right? And um, Padua does not have a ghetto itself until about 1614. So the ghetto is a pretty new phenomenon in Padua. Um, and when the plague um, is arriving, before it actually arrives, um, the health department in the larger city of Padua in the Christian city um, orders the Jews to, to prepare um, and administratively also to have some type of command structure for um, dealing with the plague. And they elect a committee of four and, Pad and Catalano is one of that committee of four. And it's in that position, from that position, that he writes his chronicle. He can describe to us the sort of day-to-day -day dealings that he um, has to, has to um, 
be responsible for, right? To prepare the community for the plague, to deal with it once it breaks out, to fight with his his co-committee members, right? Um, to um, and um, and what we know also is that he's married. Um, he has at least six children when the plague starts, the oldest, um, Moses, who writes the poems, flees with his wife to a nearby village and survives. Four children um, who remain with Catalano and his wife die during the plague, and one little girl survives. So um, he paid a price, and his wife dies. So um, he pays an enormous price, and he includes their stories in his chronicle also. So Catalano, something interesting is he does explain in the beginning of the Hebrew one, I think not the Italian one, why he wrote this chronicle. So he explained why did he decide, and is that, is that unique that he includes production, kind of why he's writing this? And then we can kind of uh, talk about the style and what he's writing in his chronicle. I mean, you've mentioned, but talk a little bit more about that. Yeah, he gives a, he gives a sort of blend of reasons, right? I mean, um, he says, you know, he's one of these characters who is, um, very deeply learned as a Jew and also very deeply learned um, in Italian and secular um, knowledge, right? So um, you he says that one reason he's writing is so that people understand that this plague was um, an act of God. Um, and um, that's a that's a pretty strong statement from a physician, right? <laughs> so, um, so he's he's telling um, he says he wants people to understand that um, that human behavior um, angered God in some way, right? And therefore, you know, the laxity of the moral laxity of the community um, is something that should be. Um, people should be on guard and 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 repent, right? Um, he then goes on to say, and then I'm also going to tell you um, what we did, right? And what um, and these are the things that you should keep in mind, right? In case you know, God forbid, this comes back again. And um, and he lists some very practical um, reasons that people should should read this chronicle. Um, and I think I, I, I say this in the book that, you know, that what struck me was, was how many of them they had in fact tried and they didn't work. So, um, so in, in many ways, his reasons for writing are, um, are pessimistic, right? I mean, it's sort of, you can feel the the sense of failure that comes through some of, some of what he's describing. So we're obviously not going to go through the whole thing and you can read the book for that. And I think even Cecil Roth published this at one point, right? This was like part of, I don't know the whole thing, part, some of it was published at one point, but you have any specific, I mean, you, you mentioned that he, you know, you see his personality come through here and you really, you know, it talks about well, what they did. Uh, is there any specific examples, or not, not examples, but any parts of it that you want to tell the listeners that you found especially moving or interesting? Yeah, I mean, I was interested partly in how he 
all of all of the men whose writings I looked at um, evoked the same kind of personality um, situations. I guess is that oh, I don't know how exactly the right word, but but um, they all are very anxious to let you know how hard they're working on your behalf, right? <laughs> and um, um, and what a toll it takes on them, right? Um, and partly what I what I argue in the book is that um, this is this is important to them as a way of um, this is who they are, right? Um, that it's a kind of identity marker to um, to say to 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 have struggled with this kind of service on behalf of the collective and um, and to have paid a price simultaneously at home many times right so um, the fact that Kanchio's son dies and Maserani's mother dies and um, Catalano's wife and four children die, right? And, um, and yet they keep going, right? They keep taking care of their public duties um, is very much part of what they try, all of them, to communicate. And it, it, it seems to me it, it was very much core to what um, what constituted a public figure's identity at the time. What I also believe is that the importance of maintaining that public identity becomes a way of identifying yourself privately too, right? So um, it is what is important to them and how they see themselves, right? So yeah, I, I, love, um, I love the scene where Catalano, um, they're running out of grave diggers repeatedly, right? And um, they keep dying, right? <laughs> and um, and they're paying them more and more, but no one wants to do the job. And they have more and more disreputable people doing it. No one wants to go into the houses of the sick and bring out the dead. And um, and someone um, in the commute, one of the Parnassim comes up with an idea that they should um, take the poor people who are receiving their, their stipend from the kupa um, and, and they should withhold their charity um, unless they're willing to take on these jobs. And so they pick 23 people or something, men and women, to um, and tell them they're not going to get their their stipends unless they assume these responsibilities, and I think almost all of them just refuse. And um, Catalano is defending them, and he says nothing is worth your life, right? That you can't expect these people to put their lives in jeopardy and we have no right to withhold their charity, right? And um, he puts up quite an argument. He loses, but he's very bitter about it. And he tells you that, um, you know, it was a great failure anyhow. They couldn't even force the people to do it. So I love seeing those kind of scenes in the story or... Um, the interaction with his wife and children, like he, clearly his wife had enormous 
character and presence too, right? But um, when uh, one of their daughters is sick and then dies and then her little sister gets very sick and um, and technically the child should be sent to the Lazaretto, the plague hospital, but no one, almost no one comes out of that hospital alive, right? <laughs> so, um, and the child doesn't want to be separated from her mother. She doesn't want to go. So um, Catalano first hires a Jewish, a young Jewish woman. He extracts her from the Lazaretto where she's with the contacts and then um, not with the sick people. Her mother is sick and brings her back and um, and the little girl won't let her take care of her and cries. And the mother finally says, you know, let me take care of her. And the mother gets sick too, right? And dies. Um, and um, so I don't know. I love seeing him as a person. So I think there are just scenes where you um, you see how he saw. And um, he's a very humane character. It just, I found him very moving. Right. And those are just some examples. Obviously, there are uh, more as well. And, and, and something else is also, as you mentioned, even though it's, you know, pretty new, there is a ghetto in Padawan. There's a depiction of, there's descriptions of the ghetto generally, and then especially the ghetto during a uh, time of plague. Yeah, right. And and what's, you know, from an epidemiological perspective, what's really interesting is that because there is a ghetto and because the Christian authorities shut it down almost instantly when plague enters the Christian city, there is actually a lag until it hits the Jewish community. It doesn't get in because nobody's going in or out. And, um, and at least... Um, how I read one of Marini's sermons, right, is that the Jews thought that this was kind of God taking care of them, right, that um, they weren't getting sick, and and he has to give a sermon and sort of say, you know, just watch it, right, <laughs> and, um, and inevitably, of course, they do get it. Yeah, unfortunately. So one one kind of final thing I kind of we'll get back to him is that you know the style, especially here compared to others. I mean, you mentioned already Cancio's kind of, you know, you mentioned his lament, his poem, and how does Catalano compare to that? Or you could even ready reference some of the you know Masserini, Marini. You think ones that we'll get to shortly? He's not a. He doesn't think in poetry, right? He includes one very small lament that he wrote for his wife, right? Um, and it's in Aramaic. It's not in Hebrew. Um, I don't think his impulse is commemorative in the same way that Cancio's was, right? Cancio is, is writing epitaphs basically, right? And um, and um, Catalano is writing a narrative, um, a chronicle of what happened, right? Um, and um, it, it's a different kind of, it, it's more, it has more policy implications, right? We tried this and that didn't work, or um, we had to, you know, try this, or we forgot to do that. And um, make sure you do this right, but the human, the human figures in the story are what keep it moving and dramatic, right? But um, 
it's not commemorative in the same way. So there's more to talk about in Catalano, but I want to, you know, move move a little bit along to another figure here is um, another Abraham, Abraham Masarini, who talks about Mantua, and he wasn't in Mantua at the time, he was in Regensburg, but it's about Mantua, and there's uh, expulsion, it was kind of kicked out of Mantua, so plague. Tell the listeners about Masarini, his bio, and about his work that he wrote, his kind of response. Yeah, he's another um, pretty high-end character, right? Like Catalano, these are very elite families, they're educated. Right? Um, he's from a, a Mantuan Jewish family. His father... Um, people who study Jewish music always um, invoke the father, Isaac Monterini, right? um, Masarini. He was um, a composer. He taught ballet, I think. Um, he um, taught singing also in the Gonzaga court in Mantua, right? It was a very big cultural center. So the father was a very well-known musician. And um, unlike Catalano, um, Masarini, Abraham Masarini is not a physician. He doesn't study medicine. Um, he seems to, he also married into a banking family. He married into the Sulam family from Venice. And that's another literary banking family, right? So, um, and he seems to have been out of the city on business, right? Um, initially in Vienna and then in Regensburg, um, and Mantua, um, the Duke died in 1628 or 16, I think 1628 and, um, and sent off, there was an enormous, it was part of the 30 years war, but it was a, it was a devastating um, conflict over who would succeed to, um, to rule. And um, in the process, um, Spanish troops, French troops, German troops, right, um, um, are all coming in and out of the area, and they all have their own mercenary contingents too, right? And um, and Mantua is put under siege, and um, when the siege is lifted, the Germans enter the city. The plague is already there. Right, so it's all happening at the same time, and um, and the Jews are given three days to leave. So the 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 city itself is sacked, the ghetto is sacked, and the Jews are expelled. And um, what Abraham Maserani describes in his chronicle, the Sefer Hagalut Hagalut is that. Um, is really that um, is really the expulsion story, and plague is a sort of side player, a minor player in the in in the narrative, right? But um, but clearly people are sick, and clearly the reality of the plague is a factor as these Jews wander from village to village and town to town and try to get. Um, asylum and no one wants to let them in right because of the plague partly so um so he writes um he because he's himself not there um it does about a year later the 
Duke returns, right? The new Duke um, enters the city and takes control. The Germans leave and the Jews come back. And, um, and there too, I think of a population, I think of 2,000 Jews before the, 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 the expulsion and plague, um, 1,000 are now gone, right? So half of the community has um, been annihilated. And, um, and uh, Masserini himself returns from Regensburg and um, discovers that his mother has died. Um, um, their family home was taken over by occupying soldiers and they can't get back into it, right? Um, so he, he at some point begins interviewing survivors um, and from their accounts, he writes this chronicle of the travails of the, of, of the community, where they went when they were expelled and, um, and how they eventually came back. So the plague is just sort of a, a sub-theme in his account. But why that mattered to me was because it seemed to me that he, his way of writing history, of writing a historical chronicle, which again is a kind of Christian idea at this point, right, um, um, shows that what Catalano was doing was not unusual in terms of um, the techniques and the style, the descriptive um, techniques that he used, that this was something that his audience would have recognized as a, as a genre. Right. The comparative literature aspect. And that's something mm-hmm. you explore much more. Yes. <laughs> I, if, if it's, it's very interesting. And I want to, you know, point out there's, uh, you, you mentioned already Catalano and the poem he includes in there from his son, Moses. Uh, another thing is that you, you do include a complete translation. You go uh, line by line uh, in the in the book as well, when you talk about um, uh, Masserini and his poem, or what is the sound of weeping from the Israelite camp? And you go through kind of 46 uh, lines and you do uh, discuss that as well, especially as it compares to Catalano's poem. So, um, Yes, Maserani includes one poem in in his chronicle. And this was something that was, um, even though I've just said that the Christian chronicles were models for the Jews in in many ways, um, the Christian chronicles, plague chronicles, do not really include poetry. So this is something very much, um, I think, unique to the Jewish chronicles. And what... um, Maserani does is he includes a very long lament, um, super long, like 45 lines or something, um, in, um, in the middle of his chronicle. And it's strategically placed so that it concludes the wanderings of the Jews in, um, who've been expelled and survived um, and, um, and precedes their return and the um, the rebuilding of the community. So um, it's a pivotal point in the in the narrative. And, um, and it 
detail some of the highlights of the experiences described in the narrative, but without any of the characters except for one, right? Um, the, only, the only named um, character in his lament is the rabbi who actually drowns um, as they are leaving the city, right? Um, but um, it's a very interesting way of seeing that genre really matters in these accounts, right? Because the prose description is full of all kinds of characters, men, women, and Christians, Jews, right? Um, nice people, bad people, right? Um, but, um, but the poem really shrinks that in a way to keep to types and to reinforce um, the message that the religious authorities um, and the communal institutions um, are still what hold the community together, right? So um, it's a theological spin on, on what the prose describes um, that, that holds the very sad story of the Chronicle, right? Um, in a kind of meaning, right? It, it allows people to see it as all the suffering and death and destruction as still part of a bigger plan. And um, um, in, in Catalano's case, right, our, um, the poems that are appended by his son are didactic poems. They're really not trying to make theological sense of, of the plague so much as they are offering practical tips for, you know, make sure you have a, a stove, right? That you can uh, make sure you stockpile some flour and oil, right? Um, make sure, you know, you can um, partition your a room. So if you have to quarantine somebody, right? And best of all, if you can leave town, right? Um, so what was interesting for me and in his, um, inclusion in the in at the end of the, of Catalano's chronicle was in some ways he he differs with his father in some ways he he repeats some of the, his father's advice but in other ways he's describing his own experience as someone who fled um and survived right um he's also in some ways taking like Maserani's poem, right? He's using his poems to add a, a more positive kind of um, ending to, to the story. Catalano himself is very pessimistic at the ending of his, of his chronicle. And the poems give you the sense that there are practical things you can do, right? To, um, including pray, by the way. Um, so pray and leave town, right? Um, <laughs> that, um, that, you know, eat, eat these foods, um, have these medical salves and, and aromatics, right? Um, things that Catalano really dismisses as, you know, we tried all that and it didn't work, you know? Um, so, um, in both cases, Maserani and the son Catalano's poems um, reconfigure 
the tragic narratives, right, to make them more theologically meaningful to, to the survivors. And, and praying is something that you pick, you pick up uh, and discuss a fair amount in the book as well. I mean, we mentioned, you know, repurposing old kind of prayers and reusing them, Pitamakteris, and that's something you talk about. And there are a number of others as well, new new prayers and other things incorporated. And you have a chapter on this, and you discuss this throughout the book as well. Um, I, I do want to get to uh, Rabbi Marini, Solomon or Solomon Marini, and his sermons we had mentioned, uh, it, 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 Italian preachers and sermons, Russia's obviously being given. And he's, I think in, in, he's in Padawan, I think he's one of the only rabbis that survives. And we have uh, sermons of his that he gave, that he spoke about. So if, again, like with the others, if you can give a brief bio about him and then talk about these sermons and, you know, how they're, they're different, different, it's a different genre. So what, what you're able to pull out differently from a sermon as opposed to poetry or chronicles. Right. Well, in right, a sermon is a, a live genre, right? It's, um, in theory, right? I mean, and um, in 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 this case, right, the sermon would have been delivered in Italian, and um, and it would have been a, a living text, right? Um, it, it wasn't; it was oral, not written down. And then um, after the fact, right, um, a preacher could rewrite his Italian sermon in Hebrew and make a kind of literary collection or anthology of his of his sermons, right? And um, Italian Jews were noted for their preaching, right? They were famous preachers. They um, combined classical rhetorical styles with um, Jewish preaching styles, and especially in Italy, um, some of the Style, preaching style that came from um, that they they acquired from Jews expelled from Spain in 1492 who brought over their own kind of preaching history. Um, but it's a big deal sermons in Italy and at this time and um, and so it's not surprising that Marini would have kept notes of his sermons, right? Um, um, but um, in his case, he apparently never got around to writing them up, right? So um, what we know about him, it's a, it's a, it's a very illustrious... <sighs> yeah, what we know about the family, um, it's a very illustrious family. We don't we don't know as much about him as we do about his grandchildren and great grandchildren, right? Um, again, we're talking about Jews who, many of them are physicians. Marini himself was a physician who did not practice medicine, but um, um, but um, but um, but in his case, he was one of almost two dozen rabbis in the pot in Padua and he was the only one to survive he must have been um, a close friend of Abraham Catalano's right so in the last chapter of my book I have the eulogies he delivered for Catalano when he died right but um but it's clear that the two men um, had overlapping interests and concerns right so um what we do have though um so 
clearly, if you were giving your sermons on Shabbat, right, you weren't taking notes or writing things down. So, um, so um, it would have at some point after um, afterwards, either a student or somebody would have tried to reconstitute from the notes what what the sermon was about and put it into nice literary Hebrew and kind of jazz it up with all kinds of illusions, right? But um, um, in Marini's case, what we have are just the notes, just basically the, um, the, the verses, the biblical text, the rabbinic citations that constituted the kind of leaping off points as he developed his argument. And he's not the only one that we have these kind of sketches from, right? But um, but as um, there, there are many of them. And as far as I know, I think I'm the first person who ever tried to actually reconstitute the sermon from those from those outlines, right? And as I said in the book, I was desperate, so I had no choice, right? <laughs> but um, but um, but it, it seemed to me, right? There are two manuscripts at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York that that contain dozens of these um, sketches or outlines. Um, um, I think the Hebrew, the National Library of Israel calls them tamsitim, right? Like um, these just sort of snippets, right? Um, that um, that you could actually, if you knew the, 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 the style, you knew what it was supposed to be this kind of introduction and this kind of development and this kind of conclusion, right? That um, you had that scaffolding in place and that if you could then, um, go back and really immerse, if I could immerse myself in the commentators and really have some sense of how those verses um, were interpreted by the people that Marini admired, then I could start to string um, together the ideas. And I also had at my disposal Abraham Catalano's Chronicle, which is dated. So because he goes day by day and he tells you what happened, I could kind of mesh it with the parasha and see what was going on and what might be um, on Marini's mind. So he's striking to me for a number of reasons. One is that um, he does kind of hammer the same themes over and over again. And he talks repeatedly about um how foolish it is to think that scientific or philosophical or medical knowledge can explain to us what's going on here, right? Um, when really we should, you know, use Torah and um, and stick to our, um, our faith and traditions, right? So he's he's clearly got his eye on the on the popularity of secular learning in um, in this community, and um, and he also um, is willing to uh, criticize the community for, um, for what he perceives to be um, moral and ethical lapses that are directly related to the chaos that has ensued with the plague. So um, predatory lending and real estate deals and um, um, and you can see that come out in, in these just these little, um, outlines, right? So I found him really fascinating. 
Yeah, and, and as you say, you included as well in the final chapter his kind of eulogies as well. And you talk about Catalano. So again, going back to that relationship between the two of them is really interesting to see. I, is that why you decided to include them there? Um, I wasn't sure how I was going to end it. And then that suddenly hit me like, oh, I've been asking this question all through this book from Cancio through Catalano and Maserini, right? How, how these how their writing, how these men's writings about the plague um, also asked us to see them in a certain way and, and their roles in their communities. And it occurred to me that if you looked at the eulogies and the epitaph, right, for um, and the lament for Catalano after he died, you would get a sense of how well that worked, right? Um, how did other people see him? But yes, Ma Marini's friendship with Catalano must have been very real, right? I mean, his grief comes through in these eulogies and um, his, his, yeah, his sorrow, right? He really clearly, and in, in his chronicle, Catalano refers frequently to Marini as you know, he was doing something, he taught people how to say confession without, you know, having to have 10 people in your bedroom, right? Um, um, so he's, they have a relationship. And I think that's true for a lot of these documents, right? And it, it leads inevitably to the question of why, why don't we know more about this plague and Jewish reactions to it, right? I think there was a small group of them writing for each other. I don't know how, how much they intended the writings to go beyond their own circles. Right, and, and as well as I'll mention the appendices as well, you include uh, the Hebrew text, you include some of the outlines by Marini, and then you have uh, the eulogies by Catalano for Marini, for for Catalano by Marini and Catalano by Moses Catalano, Moses Catalano lament for uh, Catalano and things like that. You also include the really for those that are interested in seeing more what you mean by a sermon outline, not the actual drush, just the outline, like the sketch. It's just the Machiris, really. I'm trying to think if I can read, find uh, something here to read. Um, you have Avram Kav, you have uh, Sam Marini's second eulogy for Catalano, Parshas Lachlacha. So he says, Avram Kavid Moid by Mikna, Vielech Lamasum, Avis Parake, Komishish by Gimel Dvarim, Clawley. See, me tell me they shall Alafala, I guess. Aaron and Cold Dagas. I'm seeing the left. Okay, I'm not, not like looking at it now. I'm like, what is that? So again, but it's just, it's just like real, just an outline, literally. Um, if you go through them, it's like you're saying, it's not an actual sermon. It's just you have to like reconstruct what he's saying over here. So and it's it was an art form for them, right? I mean, I remember decades ago, several decades ago, um, hearing an um, American, I think it was Jerry Molina, was a, a a great preacher, but um, I was in a synagogue where he he I saw him just take out a note card and he just had little notes written down, right? Um that there was no need to write the whole text out, right? So um, this is what they were doing. Yeah, there's more, you know, Shabbat Shuvah, Simul of Avchem, Lachalazvar, Bemedrish Tillam, Mamul and David Lufnea, Kushbarak, Rebanish Lelam, Shamanic Ishin Bas Ayan, Hagdamas Yermia, and it's just like ends. It's like, it's like literally, then it goes, that's line one, then it goes line two, line three. So you literally, 
those interested, you know, with the book, you can read this. You included the Hebrew here. It's full in the Hebrew. And then throughout the book, you sometimes have Hebrew, sometimes, and a translation, and sometimes just a translation. Um, and, and again, I said, I don't think we discussed much of the chapter on uh, the prayers, but there's that as well. Plate liturgy, as you call it. And there's a lot more specifics in here that we didn't uh, get into. I, I did want to ask, I forgot to ask this, is you know, how did you pick these figures? Now that we've kind of gone through the key figures, there are some others mentioned that, well, how did you pick them? Catalano, okay, you, you said you got to that one. And the other one, how did you decide on these were the figures you were going to focus on in the book? Well, they pick you, right? Um, <laughs> I mean, partly you have to work with what you've got. I mean, you, you what you can find. The figure I could have included whom I didn't is Judah Modena, right, whose autobiography also refers to this plague. And um, um, it's not a major topic for him because he's more interested in writing about himself, right? But, um, but, um, but um, he does definitely talk about this play, both as it's coming and then when it gets there. Um, but um, um, Jacob, Jacob Sahalon, right, in Rome in 1656. So if I had wanted to just wait another 25 years and then add another plague, the, the plague in Rome in 1656 is also devastating. And there are Jewish testimonies to that. So... Um, partly because Italy is not my normal working field, um, and Italy is so diverse in terms of the history of its different regions and the Jewish communities in those regions. Um, I wanted to stay in northern Italy once I was there because it was... Um, it, it was something I could control better as per the historical sources, but, um, but I took what I could get, you know, so um, it, there may be other texts that people know about or will turn up and, um, and, and those should be studied. In the case of Marini's sermons, there were some that were just too faded for me to read in that manuscript. It might be with other kinds of lighting or, you know, somebody could decipher them. And, and one reason I was very anxious to include the Hebrew for those texts at the end is because someone may read them and have other interpretations um, from what I suggested. So, um I, I don't know that I, I picked. I think that it, that's what I could find. Okay, so, you know, like I said, there's more to talk about. Those interested can read the book, and there'll be a link in the, in the show's notes to purchase the book. But just finally, is I mean, what can readers today in the 21st century reading about this, looking back at the Great Italian Plague, I mean, what can we, what can somebody interested in reading this and reading these texts and your interpretation of these texts, but really also a lot of these texts and these stories, what can we kind of uh, get from it? Well, it's impossible um, for us, right? Um, maybe in 10, 20 years, that will be different, but um, we hope. For us, we can only read this with COVID in our, in our minds in some way, right? As, as, as our own experience has some resonance, right? Um, and uh, and I think it is very moving for me um, in all of in all of these cases, um, including the liturgy 
chapter, right? And even, you know, the recycling of the Pitumak Torah or, or the use of um, old prayers or repurposing old prayers for, for new purposes, um, new uses, right? That, um, that I, the resilience of these communities is, is a, is a lesson, right? Um, um, the, the, the multiplicity of, of options, right? That fact that they will, they're going to doctors and they're praying, right? Um, um, the fact that they can um, embrace multiple ways of finding meaning in their experience and um, in, in, in getting through it to the other side. I think the fact that um, Cancio, Masserini, Catalano, right, are all writing after the plague is over, and you can sense the weariness and the um, depression, and, and um, which is sort of where we are, right? <laughs> um, that that um, like, oh my God, like look what happened, right? And um, there's a there's a very human story in it to me, right? Um, um, in how communities, and specifically Jewish communities, right, um, meet this kind of catastrophe and um, and the stress on their on their traditional ways of making meaning. Um, um, how how do they hold on to those? Um, how do they maybe jettison some of them? How do they emerge right on the other side of these kind of crises and and rebuild? Yeah, and I think you really you know it's really interesting to read the book and to see them and their stories and a lot of them forgotten stories until you kind of uh, found them and discussed them here. So, like I said, I will include a link in the show's notes for those interested in purchasing the book and reading more. And uh, thank you, Professor Einbinder, for joining me on the podcast to talk about it. Well, thank you so much for inviting me.